I'm Scott Thompson. Here's the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, Hong Kong feels it is going backwards under the rule of China. Will the protests continue? The president has now decided to remove the Mexican tariffs. Did he once again create his own problem to find a solution to it? And major festivals like Supercrawl and Festival of Friends have seen funding cuts from the province. How will it hurt their festivals? It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. All right, if you're watching the news over the weekend, you would have seen uh, lots of protests going on in Hong Kong. Um, uh, Hong Kong's leader pushing ahead with a bill that has sparked a huge protest. This bill would cause amendments to extradition laws. So basically, if you're in Hong Kong and you run into trouble, you could find yourself uh, being sent to China for uh, uh, the the judiciary process. Uh, obviously, some uh, obviously many are not happy with that. Hong Kong uh, was guaranteed the right to retain its own social, legal, and political systems for 50 years under an agreement reached before the 1997 return from China, uh, to China rather, from British rule. But China's ruling Communist Party has been increasingly reneging on that agreement and pushing through unpopular uh, changes. Where does this go from here? And are we surprised at any of this? Let's bring in Elliot Tepper, Emeritus Professor of Political Science, Carleton University. He is with us now. Elliot, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Always a pleasure, Scott. Did we all think that this transition from British rule back to China would be uh, w- would be seamless? It was never viewed as uh, seamless. It was always going to take a lot of effort, but we weren't sure, no one was sure really, the direction it would take over time. Uh, the Just as a reminder, Hong Kong was ceded as a colony to the, to the British Empire in 1842. And then in 1898, a 99-year lease was worked mm-hmm. out. So it seemed like forever, but you know, forever arrived in 1997, and there was a handover. And there was a negotiated arrangement leading up to the uh, U.K. handing back to China sovereignty over its island, and it's a little collection of islands, actually. Mm-hmm. So uh, 1997 is the watershed, and in that handover, the formula was created one country, um, two systems, so that Hong Kong was guaranteed at that point that it could maintain a lot of what the British had put in, although I I want to underline that, uh, and it gets lost. It took the British a long time to discover the virtues of democracy in Hong Kong. It was only toward the end of their rule, but they did put in uh, to this handover uh, agreement that, basic law, that... uh, Hong Kong would remain with an independent judiciary and free press and a legislature which was at least partially democratically elected, and there would be a chief executive officer, so that basically at that point, Hong Kong was guaranteed a separate kind of system. It was a special administrative region under the Chinese constitution, so that they could carry on with the British uh, institutions in terms of uh, freedom of the press, basically the rule of law and also the kinds of commerce that would be permitted at that time, which was uh, free market oriented uh, at a time when, of course, communist China was very much uh, communist. 
So what happens when all of this ends, even the 50-year deal that was put in place after, after the late 1990s? I mean, either at the end of the day, either Hong Kong ends up becoming more like China or China ends up becoming more like Hong Kong. Yes, and that was exactly the reckoning. Well put, Scott. The, the whole question became, in which direction would these two evolve? Yeah. And there was a lot of speculation that the kind of system that was demonstrating its its uh, superiority uh, for everyone concerned in terms of Hong Kong would in fact be infectious. But that concern in turn uh, led to the uh, Communist Party, the rulers of of China, to say, no way, Uh, we are never going to allow any source, any threat to the role of the party in the state. Uh, And that's basically been the nub of the situation. But over that time period we're talking about, uh, 1997 till now, things have changed enormously for China. Uh, right. Hong Kong was, you know, the, the what is it? The goose that lays the golden egg. Mm-hmm. At that point in 1997, China's economy was nothing like what we see it today. But what we see it today is, you know, it's a, the world's second, perhaps largest economy, and we have a new loot leader in terms of Xi Jinping who is bent on standing forth in a way, in a sense, to, re, to reverse the humiliation of the 1842 hmm. kind of, um, of unequal treaties that were imposed on China. He's saying enough of that, and Hong Kong's future, therefore, is very much in peril. So Hong Kong is going backwards. Hong Kong is being slowly squeezed. Uh, the basic structure is still there. That is, all of the basic agreements are there, but slowly and surely, Hong Kong's freedom of maneuver has been reduced. Uh, there's been intervention inside Hong Kong at, in the terms of their electoral processes. The mainland has their own favorites. The, uh, there's a multi-party democracy there inside Hong Kong. It's been very much affected. And uh, that has led, among other things, to numerous protests in the streets. So the world thought that with this lease and, and, and Hong Kong finally going back to China, that China would see, hey, listen, or that China would realize this is the way we have to open things up. And what, in fact, what's happened is the exact opposite. And they're trying to control it again. How do they justify that? What has China learned since taking back Hong Kong? They've learned that uh, they want to reunify the country under Xi Jinping's uh, more assertive and nationalist uh, self-defined role for the party within the state and him within the party. How can you look at Hong Kong though and think, "Wow, they're not as good as what China is"? I mean, wouldn't you look at wouldn't you look at Hong Kong as a, you know a shining light, and this is how perhaps we should the direction we should be moving in? We just had uh, in town here the McDonald Laurier Institute brought in Martin Lee, uh, who was uh, a longtime pro-democracy activist within Hong Kong. And he just came in and said this. Uh, as I put it, he said, if you look at China, it is a big desert as far as the rule of law is concerned. If you look at Hong Kong, it is a pleasant oasis where you meet people hmm. who enjoy the rule of law. Hmm. This is not, of course, a view that Beijing and certainly Xi Jinping shares. So what even happens after the next the, the, the next 50 years? Well, obviously, they were supposed to keep their, you know, uh, stay away for 50 years. But that being said, that's not happening. But even so, what happens at that point? Well, there, there was actually a little clause that it could be renegotiated. So technically, 
what was negotiated in 1997 could simply be, with some adjustments, appropriate adjustments, could be extended for another period of time to be agreed upon. But what you and I are talking about and what the world is talking about is, is that the mainland is not waiting, that they have decided to impose tighter and tighter controls over Hong Kong, uh, and that uh, Hong Kong really is fighting, struggling against doing, uh, accepting that. Uh, I remember these days, and I remember telling my students actually and saying, you know, I think what's going to happen, uh, Scott, is that as China grows, they are going to squeeze Hong Kong and expand, expand Shanghai. At that point, Shanghai was nothing like the Shanghai we see today. And that's proven to be the case. They are squeezing Hong Kong, but it isn't just Shanghai now. Much of China is, is uh, in a totally different economic situation. So the need to keep hands off Hong Kong has diminished. Hmm. Um, uh, Chief Executive Carrie Lam yes. uh, says she's not taking um, her, her cue from China and that this bill uh, seeks to prevent Hong Kong from becoming a haven for fugitives and is not uh, uh, and is not focused on mainland China. Western democracies have accused Hong Kong of failing to address issues such as money laundering, uh, terrorist financing and such. That's her excuse. Uh, how do you how do you process that? She is. Um caught, in a sense. Uh, she is the chief executive. Her predecessor was basically uh, criticized to the point he had to resign. Uh, so keeping an eye on those kind of canaries in the coal mine, including her role, is an indicator of the future of Hong Kong and its relationships with the mainland. How much degrees of freedom does she have? So in her case, uh, in the charges that have been made about Hong Kong is, well, of course, Hong Kong needs to have a much, it was kind of a wild west form of capitalism, literally a cutthroat cap, capitalism at one point early in its uh, evolution. But the claim that Hong Kong has to have this kind of extradition treaty to bring it into line with a rule of law, that seems to be transparently uh, not the case. Who's going to win this tug of war? Well, <laughs> Because you would you, you would automatically think, well, China is. It's just a matter of time. Yet Hong Kong, this isn't, you know, I mean, it's not Beijing. No. 2003, huge street protest broke out because of something that, uh, that uh, the mainland was, was trying to push upon them. And those huge street protests led to the shelving of that particular anti-subversion law, which was seen in the same light as this one, that it's really a covert way to, uh, to bring more control over Hong Kong by the mainland. But in 2004, you may remember this, you and I may have talked about it, the Umbrella Revolution, yep, yep. where mm-hmm. huge numbers of people took to the streets. Uh, they were demanding greater democracy, actually, in the, in the selection of how their leaders were going to be uh, uh, chosen. And in that case, they lost that. The umbrella, by the way, was because there was so much tear gas being mm-hmm. <laughs> tossed about. They were using umbrellas as a, as a shield, not much of a shield. So in 2004, the kind of street protests you and I are talking about now, where perhaps a million people have been in the streets, uh, it didn't work. How is the world viewing how China is dealing with Hong Kong? I think there should be a lot of concern about, about this. And one of the places we should also switch our attention to is Taiwan. Because when this one country, two systems was negotiated, well, there were three at that point, 
places of concern to the mainland. One, of course, is Hong Kong, and Chris Patton uh, was there for the last British governor of the place. And in Macau, which was Portuguese, that was easy to take over. Actually, some Vidgard students basically eliminated the Portuguese. But Taiwan is a different, uh, different matter altogether. Taiwan and everybody who views the future of Taiwan as important should be kept in mind as we watch what happens to Hong Kong. Will China recognize this is, you know, one system, uh, one country, two systems. Will they move toward reunifying the country first by bringing Hong Kong under much stricter control and then move on to Taiwan? Is that how China views this? Uh, these protests are only going to get bigger, only going to get out of control. We have to get a handle on this now. Will this only make will the protests only make them take more drastic action? It's entirely possible they'll do drastic action, but they can also just wait it out and say, okay, you've had your say, now we're going to go ahead and impose what we want anyway because we have enough control uh, of your legislative processes to make it happen. We should also keep in mind there's a big, not just Taiwan, and I think that should be emphasized, there's a big Canadian connection here uh, in more than one way. First of all, Canada supported the handover uh, arrangements and also in the United Nations. So Canada is part of the international community that has a, a moral, as others are putting it, a moral concern for seeing to it that Hong Kong's democracy is not squeezed beyond, out of existence, essentially, or put under great uh, restrictions. Second of all, Canada has every reason to worry about the judicial system inside China. Because as you and I have already discussed, and as always in, in our minds, mm -hmm. there are at least two Canadians who were picked up arbitrarily, we feel, and are subject to arbitrary Chinese courts. And Hong Kong is saying, we don't want that. That's why we don't want this sure. extradition law. Mm -hmm. They don't recognize the rule of law. Well, Canada is worried about China recognizing the rule of law over our citizens. And thirdly, there are perhaps 300,000 people in Hong Kong who have Canadian passports. Some of them are Canadians who've moved over. Some are Hong Kong residents who came to Canada precisely to have an escape valve. They established themselves in Canada. Many of them keep homes and businesses and family here, but they are, their main residence uh, right now is in Hong Kong. So we have a very legitimate concern over what happens to Hong Kong. Didn't the world see this coming? Or, or again, the, the hope was, no, they'll learn from Hong Kong how great this is. Yes. Well, there was always that hope that that Hong Kong would spread uh, its way of doing things onto the mainland, but the mainland at the same time feared that, and they certainly have the levers to prevent it, and that's what we're seeing in front of us. So where is this going? I mean, these protests aren't likely to stop. Can you, can, can you take the golden goose away from Hong Kong like this? Well, it's no longer the golden goose it was compared to uh, the 1997 handover date. Yeah. The China is now a developing, prosperous country asserting itself on the global stage under a new leader, Xi Jinping, who is quite um, not like his predecessors, let's put it that way, in the sense that he is saying it's time for us to reverse this temporary Western imposition on us. We are going to resume our rightful place as mm. the Middle Kingdom. Uh, the humiliation is over. We are standing up now. We're standing forth. We'd like to do it, of course, as part of the global community. We don't want to go to war over this globally, but we are back, and the world had better take notice, and so too should 
Hong Kong. How how does the rest of the world process this new China? The, how does the world process a China that for the last 20, 30 years everyone's trying to make friends with, and now all of a sudden, whoa, what yes. happened here? Yes, and there was some talk that when Canada was negotiating preliminarily a free trade pact with China, that China was insisting on an extradition treaty <laughs> as part of that. Right. Uh, that Since neither went anywhere, it doesn't matter. No, I think the... Uh, the world should pay attention to what's happening in Hong Kong and also toward Taiwan, because if we stand in our kind of values, for our kind of values, a kind of world governed by our kind of values, then standing up for and with the pro-democracy side of Hong Kong, or at least the rule of law regarding the handling of issues uh, between Hong Kong and, and the mainland, that's well worth it, because if Hong Kong really loses this battle, and then Taiwan uh, is facing an even greater challenge, then I think countries like Canada are really going to be the losers. Uh, what are your thoughts on uh, what transpired last week and former Pre- uh, former Prime Minister Brian Mulroney suggesting that uh, yeah. should send Jean Chrétien and his team down there? Well, it's interesting that you have a conservative prime minister advising the liberal government to send a former yeah. liberal... I mean, so that's just a little side issue. Yeah. Uh, but he also said, don't just send Jean Chrétien. Send, send the <laughs> team. The yeah. Because Power Corp is a power, and uh, the Chinese res- you know, respect economics. Well, it's an interesting idea. When the time is right, where the Chinese signal, they might be willing to come to some kind of an arrangement and are looking for an off-ramp, are looking for a mechanism, well, then, they could, with a wink and a nod, they could do that. But right now, it's quite clear their position is is unchanged. We either release uh, their their uh, their COO, they, their champion, their their princess of their uh, number one yeah. industry overseas, or Canada is not going to have anything like good relations with with China. So they are hanging tough at the moment. Will the time come when an off ramp is uh, is being sought by China a little bit? Then that kind of a uh, creative idea might be useful but the time does not at the minute seem to be right how you know we're, we're constantly hearing about trade between the u.s and china and how we're caught in the middle how, do, how how difficult is is any sort of deal going to be with this new china it's going to be difficult um because at the end of the day it doesn't seem about partnerships it's more about world domination well i think i think they were quite willing to take their what they saw as their rightful role within the existing political order, uh, just taking up a whole lot of more space within it. However, uh, when the wires get crossed on them, in our case, uh, because of our, what in their view is very significant and egregious, but is not a, a, a major matter because it's Canada, but when the U.S. is involved, if there's something like a new Cold War evolving between China and anybody that it can align with, and the U.S. and anybody aligning, and that would be us automatically aligning with the U.S., if a new Cold War is emerging over this, then we are into a whole new different and, and, and very fraught situation. How is Donald Trump and the U.S. viewing the protests in Hong Kong? Uh, you're asking me once again to guess what goes on in the yeah. mind of Donald Trump. <laughs> I, I don't in the past, he's not shown himself to be a great avatar of human rights. Human rights are not number one, two, or three are visible on his, his agenda globally. He's talking about trade. He's talking mm-hmm. about asserting America's 
uh, role in a different way. America first, and everybody, including Canada and Mexico, has to pay attention to that and all the other traditional allies. But he's also said that, look, we can make a deal with China. And as part of that deal, then maybe Canada's situation over what China views as a hostage uh, could be wound up in that, and then our people could be released, and something like something like normal relations could be uh, restored between Canada and China. But right now, uh, the situation is building so that China and the U.S. are on much more of a collision course than we would have thought mm. not long ago. Elliot Tepper has been with us, Emeritus Professor of Political Science, Carleton University. Elliot, as always, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. We'll chat again. I'm looking forward to it, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Despite a deal being struck, the U.S. president uh, dangled his tariff threat against Mexico again in regard to border issues. Uh, you might remember that. Um, uh, sorry. OK, um, sorry. Uh, people talking to me. I hear voices in my head. So anyway, uh, uh, you might remember last week, uh, all of a sudden, Donald Trump, uh, in regard to uh, what was happening uh, on the U.S. border, wanted uh, uh, Mexico to take a greater responsibility on this and said he's going to dangle some tariffs there until uh, something has done. And then uh, magically uh, a change of pace. Some are saying that these deals that he was talking about and pressuring were already uh, in the works. Let's bring in uh, for some clarity Reggie Giacchini, Washington producer, correspondent with Global News. He's based in Washington. And, of course, don't forget to watch Global News tonight at 530 and 6. Reggie is with us now. Reggie, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Good afternoon. So, uh, Reggie, back to last week. Uh, What was the reason for putting these tariffs on Mexico in the first place? Well, look, the president has been complaining about the situation at the southern border now for a couple of months. And in doing so, he said that it's Mexico's uh, responsibility to basically control the flow of of, uh, migration that's happening uh, towards the southern border with the United States. And uh, in doing that, the president has basically said, look, Mexico, you need to stop this. You need to make it easier for uh, for America to conduct its daily business by not having to put up with the situation at the border. And if they didn't do that, he said, well, then I'm going to hit you with tariffs, which is kind of a an unconventional thing for a president to do, but that's been his threat for a couple of months. Mexico, deal with the problem or you're going to pay for it financially. So what can Mexico do to stop? I mean, is it about is it about immigrants coming in uh, and passing through all their and on their way to the United States? What can Mexico do about that? Well, Mexico is able to uh, basically help control the situation by either considering themselves a safe third country or putting themselves in what's called a safe third country pact, which would basically say anybody who's using Mexico to get to another country to seek asylum, uh, they basically have to uh, uh, to make their asylum claim in the first country that they step into. So if Mexico is where the first uh, first footstep is taken, that's where they'd have to make the claim they wouldn't be able to go to the U.S. Similar to uh, what we have also, here. They're uh, also basically being told by America that they have to... Uh, if, if somebody crosses over into the U.S. and makes an asylum claim, they can be sent back into Mexico to wait for the process to play out as opposed to just kind of being released on an ROR mm. uh, into the U.S. And, and saying, come back to court when, when it's your time. So these are the things that the, the Trump administration has been pushing Mexico to do. And it appears now that is what is, you know, essentially going to happen, or at least some of these things are going to happen. So the Safe Third Country Agreement, that's very similar to what Canada has with the United States. Absolutely. And the Mexican government has really been trying to not take part 
part in that. They've really wanted to see themselves as just kind of a pathway up for somebody else to get through, only because they, you know, they may not be uh, as industrialized across the entire part of the country as, say, as say the U.S. is. Right. So they were hesitant to do that. That's still something that's in negotiations. It's still something that's going to be uh, that's going to be discussed going forward. But for now, the the Mexican government is uh, essentially in kind of a negotiating process and saying we will help out the situation uh, with the southern border. The problem is, is that these conversations uh, took place several months ago, and the Trump administration is now claiming victory for them right now. That was my next question. This was all stuff they had been working on. Uh, Did he sort of put the tariffs on before this announcement was about to be made anyway? Well, so the tariff conversation is one that people are starting to cry out to say, well, the president kind of dug himself into a hole by saying that he was going to implement these tariffs on the Mexican government for the for not dealing with the the, uh, the migration issue, you know, starting at 5% and potentially getting up to 25% by October. But the critics or critics of the president are saying, look, the president put all these uh, tariff threats in place, knowing full well that they may not actually go through, they may hurt his own economy. And what we're learning now over the weekend was uh, reporting from the New York Times that then Secretary of Defense Kristen Nielsen was actually uh, in the middle of conversations to try and have all of these things negotiated. Some of these things were already on paper. Some of these things were already in the plans to be worked out. And it was just kind of logistical planning to get these things panned up. So the president is basically taking a claim of victory for something that was in uh, negotiations for months. The next problem is you cannot just put an immigration policy in place and snap your finger and say it's going to be done. This is something that is going to take weeks, if not months, in order to uh, get put in place including a number of Mexican National Guardsmen down towards the Guatemala border. So the president has said he wants to see instant results. It could likely take months for this to happen. And in doing so, uh, the president may get frustrated and start putting these tariff threats out again. So uh, although a lot of this was already in the works, Reggie, did his tactics work? I mean, did putting the or the threat of these tariffs, did that speed things up? Uh, it, or, or again, is this just him creating his own problem and then finding a solution? Well, I mean, here's the thing. The tariff situation, nobody was actually sure if it was going to be uh, legally allowed. There was constitutional crises that were kind of popping up about this, saying the president is overreaching the executive branch arm by trying to threaten an ally with tariffs over what's essentially uh, a legislative issue right now. So there were comments that the president might have dug himself in too deep when complaining or, or, or commenting about putting these tariffs on and going forward saying that he may use this kind of tariff threat again. Whether or not the tariff threat actually worked is one thing. It's the simple fact that these conversations had been taking place for months, and then the president's issuance of a tariff thre- of a tariff threat, rather, uh, in in kind of a roundabout, muddied up way, makes it seem like the threat is what kind of led to the end result here. With him, you know, kind of ignoring the fact that the conversations right. had already taken place, and then using Twitter to say that the stories being reported by the New York Times are flawed and are failing, but then doesn't actually add any you know proof or information as to what part of that story is false. Uh, so at what point do countries, uh, just sort of roll their eyes as soon as he starts screaming tariffs? Is this becoming a boy who cried wolf or boy who who cried tariffs? There's a number of countries that are already kind of facing this, this trade war and this tariff threat uh, from Washington, whether it's Mexico, whether it's kind of this unannounced potential threat tariff against Australia, whether it's something like China, the president's been using tariffs to try and get his own way on, uh, on trade deals, or in the case of Mexico, trying to deal with immigration. Uh, The problem is, is the president 
president continuously refutes any kind of uh, information or statement that the tariffs will actually harm the U.S. Uh, 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 people who live inside the U.S. Because as anybody who, who pays attention to economics knows, when you levy a tariff against another country on the goods that are being exported, uh, the consumer on the receiving end of that is going to pay the ultimate price because the costs are going to have to go up. But the president sees it completely differently. He says that America is going to make millions and billions of dollars by putting these tariffs on and, and kind of having that roundabout conversation without giving the full picture. His supporters like the idea of putting tariffs on and getting deals done. The problem is, is that when those tariffs are in place, it's going to be his supporters that are affected most. Again, how and we've had this discussion before, but how can you try to sell NAFTA 2.0 if you're constantly yakking about tariffs? Because, again, the whole idea about trade deals is there aren't any tariffs. Absolutely. And economists have been kind of pushing this by saying, Mr. Trump, look, you're trying to put legislation on the tables of lawmakers in Washington to get this new NAFTA or USMCA pushed through. And Democrats are already very weary about it because they don't uh, like some of the labor negotiations or the labor uh, logistics that are having to do with Mexico. There's some kind of concerns about how the U.S. government and how the U.S. Uh, uh, labor force is going to be impacted by it. So by kind of muddying it up, by putting uh, you know a tariff threat against an ally that's supposed to be a part of this tripartite agreement to get a new trade agreement in place uh, kind of, uh, you know, throws a few more clouds up in the air and makes it a little bit more difficult to kind of see the end picture. So the president is not winning any friends on the Democratic side in Congress with these threats of tariffs. And it ultimately could have an impact as to what happens when Canada and, and, and Mexico try to fully ratify all this and put it through. So as it stands right now, are these gone? Are these off the table? Or are we're just watching and waiting to see what happens depending on the border issues? Well, according to what his tweet was over the weekend, the tariffs are off the table, but they might just kind of be pushed into a draw right now because he says that if Mexico doesn't kind of uh, live up to their end of the bargain, that he'll throw these tariffs back in place. He was speaking on CNBC this morning, calling in uh, and basically, you know, kind of making this vague threat by saying, well, there's other legislation that we've got signed and sealed right now, but the Mexican government needs to sign off on it. But he was very vague on details, didn't give any information about what that was, but then said if Mexico doesn't sign that, he'll put the tariffs back in place. So this is kind of one of those, they're off the table, but are they really off the table? But does he actually have a plan kind of situation. Reggie Cicchini with us, Washington producer, correspondent with Global News based in Washington. Make sure you're watching Global News tonight at 5.30 and 6. For more on this, Reggie, as always, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Festivals like Supercrawl, Festival of Friends, have seen funding cuts from the uh, provincial government. Uh, organizers, uh, of course, have now have, have tried to make uh, uh, up for the losses that they are going to see. Let's bring in Tim Potisic, co-owner Sonic Onion and organizer of Supercrawl and on the line with us now. Tim, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Hey, nice to hear from you. So, Tim, how did you hear about this? When did you hear about it? I uh, heard about it a week ago, Friday. And what did you hear? Uh, we just got a letter, you know, saying that uh, thanks for applying to the program and you've uh, not been funded this year. So how much did you get? How much do you not get now? Uh, we had ramped up. I mean, we were in a two-year application period the last uh, couple of years. So it was uh, 275000 last year and this year it's uh, zero. So it's gone from two seventy five, two hundred seventy five thousand to absolutely nothing. Yeah. Are you surprised at that? Are you surprised you didn't get a reduction of some sort, but still get something? Our expectation was that we would be reduced. Like so, we were planning for that. Yeah. Uh, we were planning for a reduction, and um, we, you know, of course, didn't know, but we're getting more nervous because they usually they uh, let us know in April when um, 
when funding comes through. And, mm-hmm. you know, as every week went by, I got more and more nervous, and we were all nervous. I think uh, across the province, provincially, festivals were nervous. Yeah, because every week that goes by makes it harder to deal with, you know, any kind of deficit or uh, reduction that you'd have to deal with. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, then the work came down, so we've been scrambling for the last week. Um, did they say why? Did they give you any reasons? What did they say? Uh, no reasons, uh, really. Um, the letter was very matter-of-fact, which, you know, those letters tend to be. Uh, we've asked for the reasons, so we've reached out in press releases and phone calls and emails. I've been lobbying every level of government and everybody I know in government, administrative people at Celebrate to find out uh, the scorings. And ha- I mean, that is freedom of information eventually, so we should be able to get that and be able to make it public at some point. Um, and uh, yeah, we've basically just been trying to figure out, you know, from reading between the lines of what uh, the minister has said the program is supposed to be funding and what it was intentionally, you know, mandated to fund when we actually did the applications were kind of two different things. So just trying to get answers, really, more than anything. Uh, do you think there's any recourse, uh, any appeal for this in any way, in any way? Well, we're attempting. You know, mm-hmm. we're sort of banding together um, with uh, Rob at Festival Friends, Lisa at Franklin Fest. Um, and uh, some of our other friends in this, you know, area that were partially funded, everybody took a cut um, to try to lobby to see if we can't uh, convince the province to give some money to Hamilton in general. Uh, it worked in Ottawa. Ottawa got right on board right right away quite quickly last week to uh, lobby uh, Tivolo and had some support from some MPPs in that area and the mayor of Ottawa to uh, rally quickly to get a couple dollars, well, quite a few dollars actually, invested back into the Ottawa festival market. Um, so we're attempting to do the same thing. Uh, what about the other festivals? Did they see uh, complete cuts like you guys did or just reductions of? Well, the three main ones, ourselves, Festival Friends, Franco Fest, all received zero. Yeah. Like, completely cut. Um, and uh, Burlington received, I think, 40% of what they received the year before, so pretty major pretty major cut to their um, uh, program as well. Um, and uh, the other festivals that were funded in Hamilton were pretty low. Um, our beer festival also received Celebrate Money and it's and we received zero this year, too. So, you know, we have two events that we run, uh, major events out of three, basically, that we run in Hamilton that received zero funding. So where, uh, so you're roughly $275,000 short. That's not nothing to sneeze at. What happens? How does this affect Supercrawl? Well, we're forging ahead. Like, there will be no changes to the event uh, that anybody would see. Our um all of our uh, performances are already booked. Our you know production is booked. We're we're moving forward. Uh, we're looking at doing a series of different things to find um, in kind services, to find supplier discounts, to find additional sponsors while we can uh, over the next couple months. Uh, it's a real rally. Like it's pretty hard to find additional sponsors this late in the game, but we're working on it. Um, uh, talking to the city to see if there's any in kind services that the city can provide. Uh, to the festival, Jason Farr put a motion forward last week to council to try to uh, rally to see if there was support for that, and there was unanimous support to get staff to investigate those things. So they're investigating. I believe they're reporting back this week. And, uh, yeah, we're hoping so, like, all these little things will add up to us finding 
uh, all of the dollars and um, being able to not be in a, you know in jeopardy at all. I, I feel like we'll get there. I'm playing a lot of work. I'm playing devil's advocate here, Tim. Has this festival got to the point where it doesn't necessarily need government funding anymore? It's self-sustainable. Well, that's what the government's saying. Yeah. Um, for us to for us to grow, which is a mandate of like any of the other funding that we receive, mm. generally, then um, we need that funding too. Like it, it's going to be real. There's no way we could grow this year. There's just no growth. There'll be yeah. you know internally that we'll be shrinking for sure. It'll be harder. We'll be bringing in less staff. We're all everybody's going to get pushed a lot harder than they ever have. Mm-hmm. Um, and trust me, my staff and everybody that we hire is already pushed close. Mm-hmm. not at the limit or beyond the limit of what they can do. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, it's really hard to have to make people work this hard for such, mm-hmm. you know, really in the big scheme of things, pretty paltry pay. Um, but we have some incredible people that work for us, and they'll all rally and make it happen. So at least we've got that. But that's not, you know, that's not the way you run a sustainable long-term business. You just can't operate like that, right? So, and you know, these funding mechanisms are in place to help festivals grow, uh, to help festivals become sustainable. And, you know, pulling $275,000, which is, you know, about a quarter, 20 to 25% of our budget, um, three months out when they know, you know, if they know anything about festivals, you know, you're generally booked (laughs) and announced, um, you know, prior to that. So, has this has this announcement spawned any more corporate interest? The fact that obviously these festivals are going to see a shortcoming. Uh, yes, I would say that receptive phone calls. Uh, I don't have people beating down my door to give me money. Though. No one's handing you checks. Yeah, <laughs> no one's coming to hand me a check, unfortunately. Um, so, but we're beating down all the doors, right? And as you beat down those doors, you can have the conversation, and uh, it's not begging necessarily, but it's definitely helping. You know prompt conversation to see if people can even contribute, you know, as little as $500 more, you know, those, those little sums will add up to something significant. Um, if you, uh, if you beat down enough trees, I guess, you know, shake enough trees. How does this change the way you plan it in the future? Cause obviously when next year rolls around, you're going to have to keep this in the back of your mind. How does that change things moving forward? Well, absolutely. Like we will budget for zero. Um, clearly from celebrate and hope it's a bonus if we receive money next year. Um, and you know, we're looking long and hard now, not that we don't always and haven't always looked at it long and hard, but looking at ways that we can find more corporate dollars and, you know, be more sustainable from that perspective. But even that is challenging too, because if we run into hard economic times, a lot of the corporate dollars starts to dry up as well. Um, it's not always there, you know, the pools get a little bit more shallow. So, there's always challenges in doing what we do. It's one of the, you know, I'd have to say it's one of the hardest businesses out there trying to run, you know, free community festivals for, um, and even paid festivals. Like they're all very challenging and you're dealing with, you know, fickle audiences and changing times and, and the economy. And it's one of the first things people stop spending money on is entertainment when times get tough. So it really is, um, you know, multiple challenges, but we're, uh, this is what we do. And, we're very good at it, and we're going to keep uh, forging forward. Tim Potasik has been with us, co-owner of Sonic Onion and organizer of Supercrawl. Tim, if people are interested out there in the corporate world that want to help out, what can they do? Uh, well, they can email me, uh, Tim at SonicOnion.com, S-O-N-I-C-U-N-Y-O-N.com. Uh, they can call us, call our office, 905-777-1223, and there's also some Supercrawl uh, emails, like info at Supercrawl. There's some basic things on our website. They can go to the website and find us.
Tim Potasik has been with us, organizer for Supercrawl, and with the cut in funding uh, down to zero, losing about $275,000, they definitely definitely need corporate help. Tim, thanks for the time and insight. Good luck. Thank you. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.